Look, my servant will prosper and succeed. He will be highly honored, raised up, and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at the sight of him, for so marred was his appearance, like an object of horror, he no longer looked like a man, so now he will startle many nations. Kings will be shocked speechless before him, for they will now see a sight unheard of, and things never considered before now fill their thoughts. Who has truly believed our revelation? To whom will Yahweh reveal his mighty arm? He sprouted up like a tender plant before the Lord, like a root in parched soil. He possessed no distinguishing beauty or outward splendor to catch our attention, nothing special in his appearance to make us desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of deep sorrows who was no stranger to suffering and grief. We hid our faces from him in disgust and considered him a nobody not worthy of respect. Yet he was the one who carried our sicknesses and endured the torment of our sufferings. We viewed him as one who was being punished for something he himself had done, as one who was struck down by God and brought low. But it was because of our rebellious deeds that he was pierced, and because of our sins that he was crushed. He endured the punishment that made us completely whole, and in his wounding we found our healing. Like wayward sheep, we have all wandered astray. Each of us has turned from God's paths and chosen our own way. Even so, Yahweh laid the guilt of our every sin upon him. He was oppressed and harshly mistreated. Still, he humbly submitted, refusing to defend himself. He was brought like a gentle lamb to be slaughtered, like a silent sheep before his shears. He didn't even open his mouth. By coercion and with a perversion of justice, he was taken away. And who could have imagined his future? He was cut down in the prime of life. For the rebellion of his own people, he was struck down in their place. They gave him a grave among criminals, but he ended up instead in a rich man's tomb, although he had done no violence nor spoken deceitfully. Even though it pleased Yahweh to crush him with grief, he will be restored to favor. After his soul becomes a guilt offering, he will gaze upon his many offspring and prolong his days. And through him, Yahweh's deepest desires will be fully accomplished. After the great anguish of his soul, he will see light and be fully satisfied. By knowing him, the righteous one, my servant will make many to be righteous, because he, their sin-bearer, carried away their sins. So I, Yahweh, will assign him a portion among a great multitude, and he will triumph and divide the spoils of victory with his mighty ones, all because he poured out his lifeblood to death. He was counted among the worst of sinners, yet he carried sin's burden for many and intercedes for those who are rebels. So welcome back. We're going to look into God's Word now. We're going to study a little bit that passage 
which we've just had read to us. It's one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, if not the Bible, but it's also a passage which has been controversial and shocking to some. Just to start with, we have experienced in the last week or two some great turmoil, certainly in the United States, but also over here with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I don't know if you remember seeing the picture like this of a statue being toppled into the river in Bristol. The statue was of a man called Edward Colston, who was a slave trader uh, who contributed a lot, a lot of money to the city of Bristol, but whose wealth was founded on people's misery. And a crowd toppled his statue as a symbol of not wanting those values to be perpetuated any longer in our society. I don't know what you think about that. I think it is probably part of an ongoing process that happens continually where we re-examine the values, the beliefs, the people that we want celebrated around us. But it's an example of iconoclasm. Iconoclasm is when previously cherished beliefs and values um, are got rid of, are rejected, are attacked. And very often the symbols of those beliefs and ideas are, are toppled as well, literally. And the passage that we're looking at today is an example of iconoclasm. It's an, it's an example of God himself toppling an idea that a people had of him. C.S. Lewis once said that my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. And the incarnation, that is, God come to earth in the form of man, is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And that is what is happening in this passage. It is quite a shocking passage for many. If you think about where it sits in Isaiah, chapters 52 and 54, talk about our victorious, sovereign God who is over all his enemies, who will smash his enemies, who will restore and refresh his people. And here we have that servant who is meant to bring that about, himself being crushed. This is the fourth of four servant songs which talk about the Messiah. But in this one, it is so graphic, the description of what will happen to him, that he will be mistreated, that he will be despised, that he will be killed in a gigantic miscarriage of justice, that it really doesn't fit well. In fact, it's been so shocking that it's been left out of the regular Jewish synagogue calendar readings. In Judaism, it's a controversial passage. The earliest, earliest writings of the rabbis recognise that this is describing the Messiah. But later rabbis couldn't accept that and try to argue that the servant is not the Messiah, the promised one who would bring about God's victory, but Israel herself or some other character from the Old Testament. 
I don't think that's consistent with what the passage says. But it seems to be something that they can't accept. Christians have come to see that this servant, who is the Messiah, actually is Jesus. And it's describing 700 years before it happened, the suffering that Jesus would go through on his way to the cross. And that is a, is a strange thing. It is a really strange thing that the victory would come through suffering. It almost sounds a little bit masochistic, as if you can't have anything good unless you suffer for it. But what this passage is doing is shattering our image of God as a distant, impersonal, remote God, sitting up on a cloud, incapable of understanding our suffering. I don't actually think Jesus had to suffer in order for God to understand suffering. I think it's the problem is, is in us, not in him. I think we've struggled to believe that he could really understand suffering. But the God who knows each one of us so intimately that he knows the number of hairs on our head, the one who knows our thoughts before we have them, knows our needs and can provide for them before we're even aware of them, he is aware of the suffering of every creature on earth. And I think he does suffer, has always suffered with the suffering of his creation. But we have tended to make him distant. And what Jesus, the suffering servant, does is he destroys that fiction. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, called our God the crucified God. And many Christians have grown, have gained a great deal of comfort from understanding that God has gone through human suffering. There was um, a young girl called Johnny Erickson, who as a teenager dived into a lake and broke her neck. She was, became a quadriplegic and uh, she suffered for quite a long time, especially in her spirit, asking, why would this happen, God? How can you let this happen? And she describes a moment three years into her ordeal where she suddenly realised that that image of Jesus hanging on the cross meant that God did understand what it was to suffer in pain and be unable to move. So what does this passage want us to take away? It wants us to be transformed by our knowledge of Jesus as the suffering servant. It transforms many lives when they see what Jesus went through for us. In fact, many Jews have come to faith in Christ and to come to believe he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for by reading this very passage. And there are two real messages that can transform us if we take them and if we really hear what God is saying through this. The first one is that the reason that the servant went through what he did was so that we can share the spoils of the victor. The passage begins and ends with triumph. 
because the suffering was not purposeless. Now, sometimes suffering can seem purposeless. But God can always bring a purpose through what we experience. That's a hard truth sometimes to really learn. But here there was a purpose that was very clear. The servant suffered and died so that he could change the world, not through battle, not through force, but by changing one scared, lost, rebellious, broken person at a time. It says quite clearly that he came to bear our sin, to take on himself the guilt for our own sin, in order that we can go into a relationship with God, that we can have his presence in our life, that we can know his power to overcome the things that have held us in thrall before, and so that we can enjoy meaning and purpose in this life, and so that death itself can become the entryway to enjoying these things even more intensely and forever in a renewed, restored earth. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. These sheep could be lost because they're stupid. They could have wandered away deliberately. But it's a description of each one of us before we come back to the shepherd who is so good that he's prepared to give his life for his sheep. The most important thing that we should take from this passage is that we need to become one of his people. If we want to share in what he's won, we have to become one of his people. We put our faith in what Jesus did on the cross. We acknowledge that we need what he did in the cross. And that turns lost sheep into loved children. There are implications to becoming one of his children. We share in the spoils of his victory, but we must also share in the servant's sufferings. You see, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we're set free from the power of sin in our lives to rule us, when we're set free from fear of death, when we are healed from our wounds by his wounds, that means a complete change of life. It means that we know the power of love. We are changed by it and we live out of it. We live for God and not ourselves anymore. And we give our all to the one who gave us his all. Once we've picked up our mat, like the paralyzed man who was healed by Jesus, we need to go on to pick up our cross. Specifically, what this passage is saying is that we need to follow the example that the suffering servant Jesus gave us by living a life of self-denial for the sake of others. Philippians 2 Verses 5 to 8 says this needs to become our mindset, our default attitude and way of life. To be like Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness 
and being found in appearance as a man, humbling himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I know that the COVID-19 crisis has asked a lot of us in this regard. Many of us have undergone quite severe suffering. I think I have su suffered relatively in a minor way in terms of a little bit of loneliness, a little bit of isolation, a little bit of grieving for some of the things that I had planned. Some of us have gone through far much more. We've gone through very severe isolation. We've grieved for loved ones, not just lost events. We've been deprived not only of the company of those we love, but those we love. Some of us have been deprived of our income, our job, our sense of purpose. Some of us have lost a lot, not just now, but also for the future. And all of this suffering has been for the sake of others. Lockdown is one way that we deny ourselves for the sake of keeping others safe. But the Bible asks even more of us <laughs> than just enduring. It asks us to pour ourselves out like a drink offering, Paul says. What does that mean and how can he ask that of us? Well, first of all, we are to receive, first of all, from God. Like people in an aircraft where those oxygen bags come down, we need to make sure that we have what we need in order to help others. God promises us comfort, healing, peace and strength in times of crisis. And that's essential for us to keep seeking that from God and receiving it from him if we want to help anybody else. I do remember when my mum was diagnosed with uh, cancer and it was inoperable at that stage. And I was going driving down to Wales every week to visit her, coming back and working at my job, looking after my household and doing my responsibilities at church. I remember asking God for the peace and the strength I needed to do all of that. And he gave it to me. He really did. And I'm sure part of how he gave it to me was on that two hour drive down and the two hour drive back later in the afternoon. I had time with him to talk to him and to receive what he wanted to give me. Sometimes it is difficult to feel it. Sometimes it's difficult to hear God. I understand that. When C.S. Lewis's wife died, he wrote a little booklet called A Grief Observed where he poured out his thoughts and he reflected that in his pain and his anger, he was crying and shouting so loud that he couldn't hear God's voice. Sometimes, like drowning people, we need to stop thrashing about in our panic so that we can be rescued. It's not easy and it's not always immediate. But when we can do it, when we're still enough, he can get through and he can give us what we need to keep going. 
Second thing is we need to develop the same humility that Jesus had. The God of the universe didn't just become a person. He allowed the people he'd created to treat him like dirt. Sometimes we do good and we suffer for it. But if we are completely secure in who we are, and if God's opinion is the one that counts, then we don't have to worry about justifying ourselves in the eyes of others. Jesus didn't need recognition or respect or agreement from other people. And the Apostle Paul was prepared to make a spectacle of himself and be thought of as a fool or even the scum of the earth, as it says in 1 Corinthians 4, by others, because he was prepared to leave the judgment of what his life was all about to God. Thirdly, I think self-restraint is part of what it means to be a Christian and to live like Jesus. Jesus didn't open his mouth or retaliate in the face of ill treatment. You know, we sometimes quote Gandhi about saying uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That way the whole world will be blind and toothless. But actually it was Jesus who said it. Jesus the one who updated the Old Testament teaching of an eye for an eye. And he said, don't retaliate on social media when someone disses you. Pray for those people. Do them good. Don't cut someone out of your life when they hurt you. Deny yourself the opportunity to avoid pain and instead seek healing. It's a fruit of the spirit self-control and learning not to give back in the way that we've been given when that is hard is part of it. And God can give it to us if we seek it and if we're secure. The third thing is that we need to show determined compassion. God knows very well those nasty little things inside of us, the things that we most of the time manage to hide from other people. But Jesus chose to see our needs rather than our faults. We are to give unstintingly, even where we're, even if we're seen as a strange goody-goody. We are meant to consistently serve others, even when we're taken for granted. And to bear people's burdens, rather than just telling them how to solve their problems. These things are not natural. Well, they're certainly not to me. They are supernatural. But it's part of what happens if you truly know that you need the love of God and don't deserve it, then you are able to consistently carry on and do that for others. I think it's important as well that we seek community in that. It's hard to keep loving other people, to deny yourself for their sake. And sometimes we hide ourselves away Sometimes we just soldier on on our own. But I don't think that's the way God intends it to be. I don't think there's any room for pride or for shame or for self-reliance if we are going to love one another and other people in a way that makes the world sit up and take notice. I sometimes think about the fact that when Jesus, the night before he was going to the cross, 
went and prayed in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked his friends to come with him. He wanted their companionship. He wanted their prayers. Even though he was the one who had to go through what he did on his own, he wanted his friends close. And I think we need to make sure that we don't isolate ourselves. We are there for one another. And I know for myself that I've been in tears with my friends at times and they've been in tears with me. Community is the way that we keep going sometimes when it seems even God is difficult to find. And finally, we get through this. We do more than get through this. We thrive on our self-denial when we fix our eyes on the prize ahead. We know that suffering for the sake of others builds stamina and perseverance. And not only that, it grows a harvest of righteousness, of right living, which is its own reward. And that's quite freeing. It's not up to us to make sure that the good that we do fixes other people or fixes the world. The results are up to God. What he wants is obedience. And that obedience to our loving God, that partnership with him in going and changing the world is something that is very freeing. It's freeing because we don't have to worry what happens. We're just asked to do it. The poem that I read at the beginning of our service today, <clears throat> A Life is But a Weaving, is one written by a woman who very much knew what it was to suffer. When her grandparents died in a concentration camp by the Nazis, when her parents, when her sister died, it was very difficult for her to see what God was doing in her life let alone in the grand scheme of things. But she became a person after the war who brought reconciliation and a message of God's love even to the German people who'd been responsible for her suffering. And she became a woman whose words were respected and listened to because she knew what she spoke about. Jesus knew that there was joy ahead of his suffering and victory. The Apostle Paul fixed his eyes on what is real and what is permanent, not just what he saw in front of him. And he was able to say, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. There is more to it than what we are going through now. We will know glory as Jesus knew glory. We will know joy and victory when we reach the end of our race. We may not see it now. We may not see the tapestry that God is weaving in our lives and through what we do. But one day we will. And one day we'll be able to see him and he'll be able to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Not good and successful servant but faithful. If we are lacking what we need, 
then let's remember to go back to the cross and seek what Jesus died to bring us. And if we've become self-centred, thinking only about our own problems and issues, let's go back to the cross and remember why Jesus died and the example that he set us of changing the way things are through love and self-denial. It may shatter other people's opinions of what Christians are, if they think of them as hypothetical, bigoted. And it might also batter away a few strongholds of evil in this world. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so astonishing. That you get victory in the most shocking ways that you denied yourself for our sake Lord if we've never come to you before and acknowledged that we do it now and we say thank you and you are worth giving our life for and for those of us who are suffering Lord in very real ways we come to you for the healing that you died to give us we remember that you suffered too and we receive now your comfort and your peace. Help us, Lord, to go out there and to live as you lived and maybe to die as you died. In Jesus' name. Amen.